Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up weeks after Justin Trudeau's authoritarian crackdown on civil liberties, he says we need to listen to those we disagree with. Plus, why conservatives need to stop defending Russia. And what does the Russia-Ukraine war mean for Iran? The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to you. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North, Thursday, March 10th, 2022. And lots to get to in the program ahead, including some updates on the conservative leadership race, which we'll get out of the way now because we're actually going to be starting in the next few episodes to have our introductory interviews with those leadership candidates who have declared. We've got a full show coming up tomorrow with Pierre Polyev, the first person to announce a leadership bid. We're also working on interviews with Jean Charest, with Leslin Lewis. So again, you don't want to miss all of these things. And we have bids out to all of the candidates. Uh, we'll have them on and we'll also hopefully do a series later on where we sit down face to face and have an in-depth, comprehensive discussion with them as we did in 2020, a series that tended to be very well received. So thanks to all of you that have been asking me to do that again. But I am going to talk a little bit about Justin Trudeau going overseas and completely making a fool of himself. This is not news. This is like the old line about when a dog bites a man, that's not news. But when a man bites a dog, that's news. Justin Trudeau saying something stupid overseas is the epitome of dog bites man. <laughs> However, even if it's not newsworthy in the sense of groundbreaking or revolutionary, it is revealing. So I'm going to play this clip for you. And I don't even think I need to contextualize it. I think I can just play it, and the point makes itself. The respect for the infinite dignity of each individual means no one should get left out. And this is also true for people who hold different political views. We all need to commit to more listening and less shouting. Diversity of ideas helps us learn from one another. Talking with people who think differently from us is how we challenge ourselves. And challenging ourselves is how we grow. So by strengthening our open, inclusive societies, everyone benefits. Democracy benefits. Okay, then. <laughs> So let, let, let's just break this down a little bit. So Justin Trudeau says that democracy benefits from an inclusive society, which benefits from being inclusive of people who have different beliefs and different views. Justin Trudeau, who said that truckers protesting vaccine mandates were a fringe minority with unacceptable views is the same Justin Trudeau saying that we all have to listen to each other and maybe we'll learn something and maybe we'll grow. The same Justin Trudeau who said that people who are unvaccinated are racist, misogynist, anti-science. He's saying, well, you, people with different views, they're all important. We've got to listen. Our democracy depends on it. 
under normal circumstances, he could get away with this. Under normal circumstances, he could go into another country. This was a speech he gave in Germany, and he could say that, and all of the other leaders would be sitting there applauding, saying, oh, wow, this progressive Canadian leader coming and speaking truth to power and all of that. But this is not the case now, because Justin Trudeau's handling of the trucker convoy was something that made him famous, as they say, for all the wrong reasons. I was doing interviews in the U.S. I was doing interviews on U.K. TV pretty much every week. I was on a big station there, GB News. My colleague Candace Malcolm was being interviewed in the U.K. She was also doing interviews in India, if memory serves. So around the world, people were paying attention to this authoritarian crackdown that Justin Trudeau was doing. And it was that crackdown that led to other leaders looking around and saying, well, I guess we have justification to do the same thing here, like the way Emmanuel Macron responded to the attempt at a trucker convoy in France, which they didn't even allow to get off the ground because they figured, okay, yeah, if we're just allowed to go in and start breaking windows, that's what we're going to do. So all of this is to say when Justin Trudeau, having had the world watching his bungling of the convoy gets up and says, okay, well, we all need to be tolerant and listen. I don't think anyone's buying it. I do, and no one should be buying it, but more importantly, I don't think anyone is buying it. And this is a guy, remember, and I, I know I've said this a number of times in the show, but he came onto the stage and said, Canada's back. He thought he was going to single-handedly restore Canada's reputation in the world, which he thought had been harmed under Stephen Harper. Now, we know with the benefit of hindsight that this wasn't, in fact, the case. All of Justin Trudeau's grandstanding, the hobnobbing, standing elbow to elbow with every tin pot dictator he could find to whip votes for a Security Council seat didn't even work. Canada didn't even come close. So this idea that Canada is asserting itself as the middle power, this idea that Justin Trudeau is taken seriously, just isn't true. And in this case, people around the world are probably rolling their eyes, but people in Canada certainly should be mortified by this. How dare you stand up and give people lectures on the importance of respecting diversity of thought, diversity of opinion, when you're the government and you're the party and you're the leader who maligns people you disagree with? I mean, let, let's go back years. Let's talk about the greatest hits here. This is the guy who banned people who are pro-life from serving as liberal MPs. This is the guy who insults and maligns anyone who disagrees with him, not just on vaccination, but on mandatory vaccination, on vaccine mandates. This is a guy whose health minister accused anyone that criticized China's role in this of being a conspiracy theorist. This is a guy who routinely resorts to name-calling against his political opponents. I've got a thick skin. I don't take it personally. But I do think that anyone looking at this should be mortified at just the sheer brazenness of him claiming that he is above debate, above discussion, above discord, because he just views everyone as one. He just views inclusivity as being so pivotal to democracy. He's not particularly interested in diversity of thought or in democracy, as we've seen in the last month. So this was, again, a speech where I, I said earlier that it spoke for itself and I didn't need to add commentary, but every time I listen to it, I get a bit ranty. So that's why you've gotten the commentary on this nonetheless. But the one thing I would say is that I don't think at this point anyone is being fooled by it. I don't think that anyone is buying it. And certainly, I don't think anyone should be buying it. One thing I want to spend a couple of moments talking about here 
is the Western perception of Russia and Ukraine. And I, I mentioned the day this broke that I, I'm not in Ukraine right now. I'm not in Russia. I'm not going to pretend to give you on the ground. And in fact, I've been avoiding covering some parts of this because it's very difficult to filter through a lot of what is coming out there because everything in a war is through the lens of propaganda. And it can be true, something can be true, but still used for propagandist purposes. So there's a big challenge there. A lot of stuff has come out that you look at that and be like, wow, that's incredible. And then you realize, oh, that's a video from you know 14 years ago or something like that. And even well-meaning people that are, are trying to get the facts in the ground and trying to report on the raw footage and so on. So I, I've always taken the view that I'm not going to report on things that I'm not interested in. And I'm not going to report on things where I don't feel I can provide the best information. This is a case where I'm very interested in it. But a lot of it is in that second column where I just can't give you the best, most up-to-date information. So I've been focusing on some other things. But there are some areas where I am going to get involved. And one thing that I can talk about is the Western perception to this, the Western response to this. It was very quick that we saw all of the Ukraine flags pop up in everyone's profile pictures, and people were standing with Ukraine, Ukrainian aid was starting up. I interviewed the day the war broke out, someone from the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress who had started very quickly mobilizing support to Ukraine. Lest there be any doubt, in this situation, Russia is in the wrong, Ukraine is in the right, in my view. And that is something where you don't need to be on the ground to reach that determination. I'm also, at the same time, not going to whitewash Ukraine. It's not a perfect country. It's not a country that is the model of democracy, the beacon of democracy. It's a country that has its baggage. At the same time, I don't think that baggage supports what there has been a trend of, which is defending Russia against the point at which it makes sense to do so. And I want to play a clip here, which I, I found quite interesting. Now, I, I should say I know this person. This is a, a member of the European Parliament, Charlie Weimers, who I think I first met probably, what, 14, 15 years ago, and we, we've kept in touch over the years. And he gave a very brief, a very succinct, but I think a very important address in the European Parliament and again, he's Swedish, so he's closer to Russia geographically and as such is more threatened by Russia than anyone else in the Western world is, in Western Europe and North America, for the most part, in the literal sense. He gave this talk that I wanted to share because he speaks to a concern that I've had as well, which is looking at this, this tendency that I've seen, especially in the United States, but to some extent in Canada as well, to recast Russia and Putin in a light that simply is not accurate. Thank you, uh, Mr. President. The Kremlin's useful idiots are historically found on the left. It saddens me that some on the right have become infatuated with Putin's pretend conservatism. All conservatives should know that Putin is not a traditionalist bulwark standing up against the weak, woke West. Putin has built a morally bankrupt system. Systematic bribes, corruption, killings, stealing, lies, and now sending Russia's youth to die while killing their Slavic brethren. Is Putin defending Christendom by using fanatical Chechen Islamists and Syrian mercenaries in Ukraine? forcing one and a half million people away from their motherland and tearing families apart? Is that in line with family values and respect for the love of one's home? What about love thy neighbor? 
Is cluster bombing residential areas compatible with the commandment, thou shalt not kill? Wake up. Imperialism is the antithesis to free nations. Thank you. He said it well. This isn't some bulwark standing up for traditionalism. This is a guy who is invading. He is violating the sovereignty of another country. Even if you hold the idea of international law in murky territory, which I do, you can still say that a country's sovereignty is something that it has a right to defend and uphold. And, and in Russia's case, it's completely obliterating this idea of any Ukrainian sovereignty. And, and this idea of denazification, this idea of, uh, you know, democratizing Ukraine or whatever the case is, is absolutely nonsense. Even if you want to point to a sect of the Ukrainian population that has a radicalism of some kind and has neo-Nazi sympathies or whatever, that's wrong and that's a Ukrainian domestic issue to deal with. That's not the issue of another country. Canada couldn't just invade the United States because, ah, oh, you know what, we don't like what a couple of these groups are doing, so uh, we're going to go and neutralize them in some way. That, that would be absolutely absurd. So the excuses that have been coming out from Russia, which has shown a complete reckless disregard for civil society, for civilian life, for the rule of law, for democracy, for free markets, for freedom. This is absolutely not a country that anyone should be supporting. You can say that it's not black and white. You can say that it's not black and white and that, you know, Ukraine isn't the hero and Putin isn't the villain 100%. But you're absolutely not going to get me to say that Putin is in the right here. And I've seen a great deal of frustration emerge from some people that are looking and saying, I, how did it come that, you know, 30 years after the Cold War ended, Russia is somehow sympathetic to a lot of people on the right? So that's my thought on this. I, I do want to talk about this in a little bit more depth about a specific angle that's emerged here. And I should say the timing of this was somewhat coincidental. Iran, which is a country I do know uh, a lot better than I know the history of Russia, Ukraine, is a country that has always tried to be pursuing legitimacy and regime survival. These are the two primary roles, and this is why the Iran nuclear deal was so important to Iran, because they were getting not just legitimacy and engagement with the West, but also boatloads of cash. This was all coming from Barack Obama's government. Well, the Iranian nuclear deal is dead. Donald Trump killed it off. Iran has been trying to revive it in some way, but they've been going back and forth on this. They now see, coincidentally, Russia as being their best ally in this, because Russia has always been a, a semi-Western power. The problem is here, Russia is now embroiled in war with Ukraine. So if Iran was trying to look at a conduit to the West through Russia, this is not exactly the best time to do it. But it just so happens that these negotiations have been coming up quite recently. Uh, last week in Vienna, there were talks between the Iranian delegation and the Russian delegation, which uh, it seemed like we're going in a particular direction. And then at the end of it, uh, Russia was making some demands of Iran. Iran was making some demands of Russia and they went home with this still very much in limbo. But I want to talk about this because there is a significant dimension, I think, of the global picture here that we're missing, which is where the battle lines are going to be drawn. I mean, we saw in the Cold War this idea of the East versus the West, NATO versus the Warsaw Pact. And Russia has been a fair bit more isolated from the world, considerably more isolated from the world, even from its historic allies, 
in the course of its invasion of Ukraine. And then you look at the Iran side of things, that puts Iran in a somewhat tricky spot as well. Joining me now is Ali Raza Jafarzadeh, who is the Deputy Director of the Washington Office of the National Council of Resistance of Iran. Ali Reza, good to talk to you, sir. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much, Andrew. A great pleasure to be on your show. So obviously the world has been paying attention to what's been happening between Russia and Ukraine. I want to turn a little bit to a, a story that developed on the margins of this, which is the uh, talking between Russia and Iran, specifically over uh, Iran's pursuit of a nuclear deal with the rest of the world here. Now, I know there have been a number of changes here. The latest story is that uh, Russia has been making demands, which apparently Iran is not a fan of here. But, but explain to me where things stand right now? Why, why is Iran pushing this through at this exact moment? Well, the reason the Iran regime has come to the uh, negotiating table in Vienna uh, is because they are in big trouble inside Iran. And the issue is not just the nuclear talks. There is a bigger ditch um, and hole that the Ayatollahs are in. And they have been in this situation for over four years and that's the internal uh, situation in the country, the uprising, the protests. Uh, since um, early 2018, there have been eight major rounds of uprisings and protests all over the country, some of which, like in November 2019, led to the murder of 1,500 protesters who had participated in demonstrations over 200 cities. As we speak, um, the protests continue in different forms. The different sectors of the Iranian society are involved from teachers to, to peasants and farmers to workers, uh, students, uh, women activists, they're all involved. Um, they have rejected this regime in its entirety. Um, it was um, the regime itself conceded during the latest round of so-called presidential elections that the majority of the Iranian population stayed away from the ballot box. And remember, in Iran, it's not voluntary for you to participate in the election. It's mandatory. Uh, they stamp your ID when you participate in the elections. And that ID is needed if you want to get a job, if you want to you know, get to college, anything you want to do, you need that stamp. Yet the majority of the population stayed away. Uh, clearly, the population of Iran have rejected this regime. And under such circumstances, uh, the regime has come to the negotiating table and, and what all they're looking for is lifting the sanctions. Uh, they don't want to change their behavior. They don't want to abandon their nuclear weapons program. They don't want to put aside their terrorism and the intervention in the internal affairs of other countries in the region. All they are interested in is lifting the sanctions that is hurting the resources of the IRGC. And they say it publicly. They say uh, that this new round of talks is not, is not about um, anything else. It's about lifting the sanctions. And that's where things have, have gotten stuck. Yeah, and that was, I think, the interesting uh, attachment to the Russia situation here, because uh, Russia is wanting to make sure that it, I know, obviously, Russia is facing its own sanctions right now, but Russia was saying it doesn't want to be affected by the sanctions against Iran. So I have to just, again, go back to the why now? Why is this coming up now? And why does Iran see this moment as being its best opportunity to restore this deal? Well, you know, the, um, uh, they have come, uh, these talks have been going on for almost a year now. And uh, 
It was since August that the, uh, the new president of the Iran regime, Ibrahim Raisi, has come to office. And they thought they have a better team for negotiations, that they're going to be a little bit more uh, hardcore pressing on their demands. And they can. Uh, they were actually counting on the inaction or the conciliatory approach of the um, P4 plus one. Uh, that's what they were counting on. But what, what has happened over the past the roughly two weeks is that since the um, unjust war on Ukraine that happened about two weeks ago, um, things have, have affected this whole situation in Vienna because the Russians, um, who are the main target of all the sanctions right now by the whole world, and even the United States and UK and other countries are um, imposing sanctions on their oil and gas uh, industry. And um, there's a lot of um, um, uh, condemnations coming from all over the world um, against this um, invasion of Ukraine and in support of the uh, Ukrainian people, guess what? The Ayatollahs um, have found themselves um, on the side of the Russians. They, uh, they sided with the invasion early on, the very first day. Um, and they said it was the United States to, to blame. It was the fault of the NATO that led to the situation as we see in Ukraine. So they heavily counted and invested on the Russians, hoping that uh, aside from the alliances they've had with, the, uh, with Russia, hoping that they would be able to help them during the negotiations. And um, practically the lead negotiator had become Russia, uh, representing the United States and pretty much all the other, uh, you know, the other uh, European nations who are involved in this. And then the Russians um, who were under uh, pressure themselves wanted to carve out their own interest here saying that any sanctions on Russia should not affect their relationship with the, uh, with the Iranian regime. In other words, they wanted a way to circumvent the san sanctions and be able to have exchange with the uh, Iranian regime. And, and of course, uh, that's not gonna be accepted by the rest of the world. So that was like a wrench into this whole thing. And, and that's why the regime in Tehran is, is um, has found itself in a, in, a, in a troubling situation because they thought that they can take advantage of what happened in Ukraine while everyone is focusing on the uh, situation in Ukraine. They can get away with things, they can get the concessions that they want, and suddenly things have, have gotten stuck. And I don't know what's going to happen in the next step, but so far it hasn't really gone the way the Ayatollahs wanted it. No, and I think that's an important point here. I want to go back, Ali Reza, to Ibrahim Raisi, who you mentioned a few moments ago. Uh, the Iranian regime, we know, and, and we've talked about it on this show, oftentimes likes to put a, a face forward that is not the Ayatollah to make itself look like it's ready to engage with the West and be conciliatory. Uh, oftentimes they don't do particularly well at this, but they, they try to. Uh, Raisi is not that guy. Here's a man who is not only a, a hardliner, a, a puppet of the the Ayatollah, but also someone who quite literally has blood on his hands. Thousands and thousands of people executed at his hand uh, going back uh, decades in Iran. So why on earth would the Ayatollah think that this was going to be the guy who could represent Iran to the world and re-engage and get the countries of Europe and the United States back on board? Uh, well, Andrew, that's a great question. The conventional, uh, conventional wisdom would say that he is the worst person 
to have, uh, you know, to go out, to be your face of the regime, to negotiate, to do anything. Um, but the selection, and, and I emphasize on that word because Raisi was handpicked by the Supreme Leader to become the next president of the um, Iranian regime. And it wasn't um, out of a choice. Uh, it was out of absolute desperation. Supreme Leader Khamenei had no choice but to pick Raisi. Why? Because the main problem that he wanted to solve was internal. He have, was facing uh, continued protests and uprising on the part of the Iranian people. Uh, particularly the organized opposition was heavily involved in both organizing and, and directing and ensuring the continuity of these uh, protest acts. The main opposition, uh, namely the Mujahideen Echaw, also known as the MEK, uh, has been in the forefront of these uh, protests and uh, they have their own um, what they call resistance units uh, formed uh, in Iran since uh, the uprisings uh, started. And uh, people now are familiar with the term resistance units because that's when you look at Ukraine, you see the Ukrainian people forming their own resistance units uh, to uh, fight the um, occupation of their country. This well, and you see how powerful those units can be, even against a, a very heavily equipped and, and well-funded military. Exactly. And, 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 you know, everyone gave like no chance whatsoever uh, to the Ukrainian army, to the Ukrainian people. And they thought, you know, the Russians who have the second best, perhaps most, uh, you know, best equipped and well-trained army in the world uh, could easily in 48 hours or whatever can, can take over everything. That didn't happen primarily because of the role of the way the people stood up the way these resistance uh, units and the army fought back um, against the, uh, uh, the, the Russian invasion. And, uh, you know, the, the Supreme Leader think, have been thinking about this, this uh, problem that he has been facing in Iran. He knows the capabilities of this movement. He knows the, the sentiment of the population. He has seen how people have been chanting death to Khamenei, death to the dictatorship, all throughout these demonstrations. He has seen that even killing 1,500 people in point-blank range, uh, range and in the streets and killing them didn't end the, uh, uh, the protest. So what's the solution? The solution is bringing someone who would act as a hammer, who would leave no mercy whatsoever, who would have a, a track record, a background uh, to be able to suppress the the uh, the main force leading the protest, which is the MEK, and that was Raisi. And as you said, Raisi um, is only known because he was heavily involved in the um, 1988 massacre of as many as 30,000 political prisoners in a matter of few weeks. None of these political prisoners uh, were already sentenced to death; they were just simply serving their term. And they, based on a fatwa, a religious decree issued by then Supreme Leader Khomeini against the MEK, saying anyone who is in any way associated with this movement and remains committed and loyal to this movement in the prisons need to be killed. And he appointed a four-member, what they call death commission. And Ibrahim Raisi was one of the members of that death commission in 1988, who interviewed every single prisoner, asking them only one question, what is your political affiliation? And if they said it's the MEK, that was the end of it, that would lead them to a different direction at the end of the hallway 
they would um, hang them right away. Uh, so this is the track record of Raisi all his life, since he was only 19 years old. Um, he was the uh, involved in the uh, judiciary system. He was the prosecutor of Karaj at the age of 20. And Karaj is not a small town. It's the fourth most populated city in Iran. His job was to put people in jail and kill them at the early age. He has no education. He has no other experience whatsoever. Eventually, he rose uh, to the ranks of the regime as the uh, judiciary chief. And during the 2019 uprisings in Iran, when 1,500 people, at least 1,500 people were killed, Ibrahim uh, Raisi was the judiciary chief. So he's the guy that Khamenei needed to bring in at the helm so that he can confront the protests. The other purpose of bringing him was that he needed the sanctions lifted. And he thought by having Raisi who would, you know, draw clear red lines and, you know, would be defiant and um, would keep asking the um, Western nations uh, to give more concessions to the, to the Ayatollahs, maybe this is the guy who can, um, who can accomplish that. But also at the same time, when it comes to the nuclear issue, the plan of the Iran regime was to rush to the bomb. It's not just, you know, even though temporarily in the short run, they wanted sanctions uh, lifted, but their real goal is to develop the nuclear weapons program. And the way all the things are shaping up, that's the direction that they're taking. Yeah, and I guess just to bring it back to the Russia issue that we started talking about here, Iran needs allies. If they're going to be facing sanctions from the West, they need allies. And you're right, in some way, they may find that Russia is the only friend they can find in this climate. And yes, and, and you know, the Russians have their own interests as well. So mm -hmm. that's why, you know, the, the, the Russians want, want something that is not acceptable to the Ayatollahs. It's not acceptable to the rest of the world. So uh, they're getting stuck here. And, and you know, uh, think about it. If you are a, a regime like the Ayatollahs, whose only allies in the world are the, uh, you know, Assad in Syria, the Houthis in Yemen, Hezbollah in Lebanon, the, uh, those Shia militias whom they created and trained and funded um, in, um, in Iraq, and then among the, uh, the powers of the world, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's Russia, uh, you are in, 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 a, in a very bad shape, uh, especially when you are confronted by own, your own population. A vast well, and especially when, when, sorry to interrupt there, but especially when Russia itself is, is further isolated from the world now than it has been since the end of the Soviet Union. Absolutely. The Russians cannot play the role they used to play um, in helping the Iran regime. Um, They're in big trouble themselves as a result of the invasion. And the regime is also in big trouble because they supported this, this whole inv invasion, and they are on the, si on the wrong side when it comes to uh, the invasion of, uh, of Ukraine. So that's like an added problem. And, you know, if they didn't have enough problems, this is like one big addition uh, to, the to the problems of the Iran regime. Ali Reza Jefferzadeh, Deputy Director of the Washington Office over at the National Council of Resistance of Iran. Ali Reza, a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Uh, always a pleasure to uh, be on your show, Andrew.
Thank you, Ali Reza Jafferzadeh, for coming on. That does it for us. As I mentioned earlier, tomorrow we've got a full-length episode with Pierre Polyev, Conservative Leadership Candidate. And next week we'll have conversations with Leslin Lewis and Jean Charest as well. We'll send invites out to anyone who's in the race as well. We're not picking and choosing here. These are just the ones that we've set up at this time. Let me know what you think. As always, you can leave your comments there, and we appreciate it greatly. We'll talk to you tomorrow. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.